Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to class number five of The Lost Road. Uh, we have some really exciting, high-impact, high-action content to review together here tonight. Uh, I I'm sure you guys all found the Hlamas as suspense-filled uh, and passionate as most people do. Um, but um, anyway... I'm excited, uh, so I really want to get to that. But first, just two quick reminders of things that I have mentioned before. First, uh, I just wanted to remind you about Midmoot, um, which has been... Uh, we've got a bunch of people signing up for that. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, we have a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, my, the, uh, the, the organizers this week are getting together to uh, decide on the program, which looks really awesome. Uh, it's going to be really great. So I hope that you can join us um, down at the University of Maryland on the week weekend of the 24th and 25th of September. So uh, please do keep that in mind. You can sign, you can find the pages for that either on the Signum page or the Mythgard page uh, and can register there. Uh, several people have been emailing me asking me if there is still time to uh, apply for the fall semester. The answer is yes. Signum is a small and uh, 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 very agile uh, institution at this point. We have a very efficient uh, admissions process now. I couldn't have said that two years ago, but we do now. Uh, and uh, and uh, we have a, a, a new advising system that we have in place where we're, you know, so we can get someone's application processed and, and then hand it over to an advisor who can answer all your questions and help you get yourself start, uh, you know, started and set up at the, be at the beginning of the program. There's still plenty of time for that. Uh, the, the actual semester starts on the last Monday in August. Uh, so there's still several weeks uh, between now and then. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's getting closer to the time where it's going to be harder to do, but it, it is still possible uh, to sign up anytime here in the next few weeks. So uh, I hope that if you've been thinking about it, that you will, uh, that you will uh, uh, go ahead and send in an application and we can, uh, and we can start things up. So anyway, just wanted to make sure that I answered that question because I knew it was something that was on a lot of people's minds. Um, we do have a sort of a, an enrolling, a rolling admissions situation uh, at Signum um, where you don't have to apply months and months and months in advance. Uh, in order to uh, get plugged into our program. All right. Well, I didn't quite finish everything I wanted to say about the annals last time to everyone's shock and surprise. Uh, so I wanted to start with there. There were only four other, you know, remember at the end, I was making some random observations from the annals, just some passages that really jumped out at me and that I thought were really interesting or revealing uh, in certain ways especially sort of considering the story as we have uh, understood it to this point through all of the other earlier drafts that we've seen and that kind of thing. Um, so I have four more to do, four more random observations from the annals, and then we will turn to the Aino Lindale and the Hlamas, the subject of today's class. So first, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the tour story. Okay, so, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, so, all right, let's see. I just had this down here, and it changed on me. Okay. All right, one more thing I see. One more setting I see I've forgotten. Uh, okay, good. All right, there we go. Um, all right. Now, uh, let's play a game. What's missing from this story? Here, Tuor met the gnome Bronweg at the mouths of Syrian. Olmo himself appeared to Tuor in Nantathrin, and Tuor went thence up Syrian, and guided by Olmo, found the entrance to Gondolin. There Tuor spake the embassy of Olmo, but Turgon would not now hearken to it, 
and Meglin urged him to this uh, and ur- urged him to this against Tuar. But Tuar was held in honor in Gondolin for his kindred's sake. What's missing? From this story. Now, James, you're absolutely right. Idril is missing from this story. Uh, Idril is a major character in this story. And of course, if you read the only completed version of the Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin story, the only really full version, non-sort of summary version of it, which was the version in the Book of Lost Tales, you will know that Idril is really a pretty major, uh, a pretty major figure. Now, yes, uh, Marie, you are right that uh, never asked in the armor waiting for him. That's something that doesn't come in until later. You may be like, wait, he appeared to Tuor in Nantathrin, right? The land of willows way down in, like, at the mouth of Syrian. A, what the heck was Tuor doing way down there? And B, like, why doesn't Tuor, you know, uh, 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 well, almost, this is, this is classic. I mean, this is, uh, that's not a change. It just hasn't yet changed into the story that we know from the published Silmarillion. So, um, you know, we have, uh, we have Tuor uh, meeting Ulmo in Nantathrin, the Land of Willows, uh, which is still a watery place, like, right, mouth of Syrian. We know that Syrian is important to Ulmo. We know that, uh, uh, you know, willows and water, right? It's a, it's a watery thing, right? But it's, it's a, pretty laid-back meeting between Olmo and Tuor uh, down in Nantathrin compared to uh, the really dramatic uh, one uh, that we sort of have grown accustomed to and that most of us love uh, from the Silmarillion. That's going to be changing soon uh, for for Tuor. Um, uh, that is, you know, as, as Tolkien revises this, when we get the Tolkien returning and, and sitting down to do the, the, the really full, the fullest version of the two-hour story that he ever sat down to write, which is going to happen actually not too long chronologically from this. Um, that is, it's the, the one that's in Unfinished Tales, which, of course, Tour doesn't even get to Gondolin, much less does Gondolin fall. But, but anyway, that was, that was really the good one. Um, but, um, but anyway, so it's there, right? The meeting with Olmo in the sea by Neverest is there, finally. So, uh, so we will see that enter the story soon, but so, but, but you're right. That's a major element that's not there. Um, but yes, exactly, Marie. As you say, that's it's not different from the earlier stuff, but it's different from the uh, from the later stuff. Um, there's a there's a there's a big thing that it doesn't say that that we're... um. What's um almost message to Targan? What's Targan supposed to do? Trick question. We don't know. It doesn't say. He doesn't say what tours. What where's the told that tour goes and delivers the embassy of Olmo, right? Um, but we're never told what the embassy of Olmo is. That's kind of amazing. Isn't that kind of, I mean, no, okay. Now th- that might seem like I'm, 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 I'm sort of picking, nitpicking on a small thing. This is a really big deal actually. Um, and it's a really big deal because of what a huge deal it was back in the previous text. And I mean, just previous, not the ones that he wrote, not the book of lost tales. I'm not talking about like the stuff that he wrote two decades before. I'm talking about the stuff that he wrote like the year before he wrote this. Okay, um, back in the sketch and in the the Quenta that we looked at in the shaping of Middle Earth class. Um, so, okay, uh, this is a, this is a huge deal. 
for several reasons, right? Now, again, you might you might have perhaps you just kind of filled in as you were reading this. Perhaps you just kind of filled in Olmo's message from uh, uh, from the published Silmarillion. Right. Love not too well the work of your own hands. Right. Uh, it's time to get out of Dodge or I mean Gondolin. Right. Um, Gondolin is doomed. Leave now. Right. And you will can like still be spared. Um, and Turgon's like, mm, nah, I think I'm good. I'm going to stay. Right. And of course, that's the wrong call. That might be perhaps the embassy that you were kind of sort of putting uh, uh, putting into or sort of imagining into um, Tuor's mind. Um, but that's not what it was at all, just as a refresher for those of you who uh, uh, who may, might have forgotten this or, or weren't with us in the last class. Tour's message uh, to Gondolin was a hugely big deal because in it was set the fabric of the entire ending of the First Age story. Turgon was destined to be the one who could defeat Morgoth. Okay, so it back in the in the older versions of the story, and again, I'm not talking that old from the chronological point of view of when he wrote this this annual entry. Um, the 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 Turgon could defeat Morgoth. So the message that Olmo sends in the Quenta, the message that Olmo sends uh, through Tuor to Turgon is: muster your armies and march out against Morgoth now. And if you do that, it's going to be difficult, but you'll win. And I, Olmo, meanwhile, will be rallying the Valar and we'll, we'll, we'll totally have your back and Morgoth will be overthrown and everybody will be set free. Right. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be real unpleasant in the short term, but victory will happen and you will overthrow Morgoth. OK, that's what he tells Turgon to do. And that's what Turgon doesn't do. It's not, Turgon decides not to. So in every version of the story, Turgon never does what Olmo tells him to do. But what Olmo tells him to do does change over time. And this, perhaps, is the moment when that big shift is beginning to happen, because that's a huge conceptual change, right? I mean, if you think about it, that's a major deviation from the entire spirit of the story of the Silmarillion that we get in the published Silmarillion, right? This whole idea of, like, desperate valor that is ultimately helpless, right? I mean, there is no way... that There are times... In the first age, when the elves of Beleriand deceive themselves into thinking that they can beat Morgoth or at least hold him in leaguer, right? Um, but they really can't. I mean, this is this is hopelessly one-sided, right? And that knowledge that in the end they cannot hope themselves to win is one of the sort of the main facts that drives the whole story, that gives uh, much of the story of Beleriand so much of its tragic quality and which also gives the voyage of Arendil and uh, the deliverance sent over from Valinor the eucatastrophic force that it has, right? It is the only way, um, without hope, you know, beyond hope, the only way that Morgoth could be overthrown. Um, exactly, Brian. Arendil is the only option, absolutely. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, so that's 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 the Silmarillion story that we know, right? That's sort of what we have in our head. That wasn't the Silmarillion story before. It was meant sort of in a, in, in a kind of a theoretical way to have a heroic ending, right? Turgon was the guy. And, it, and I talked about this last time, um, but if you think about it, there's a line in the, that still survives in the published Silmarillion that in, 
it for me it is made so much clearer, like what it's referring to and what it means. It's like a, a line I never understood before. Always seemed to me a little bit strange when I was an early Silmarillion reader. And that is that line about how Morgoth always felt a chill in his heart when he passed Turgon, right? Like he, he has this premonition that from Turgon, doom shall come to him. And of course, in the published Silmarillion, all that seems to work out to in the end is Turgon is doomed to be the grandfather of the guy who brings the message over there and tips off the Valar who come and rescue him so and defeat Morgoth. So in that sense, Turgon is like totally instrumental in bringing down Morgoth. But that is a kind of a really indirect link, right? And it doesn't really seem to justify the sort of the premonition that Morgoth has about Turgon that we're told that like this chill smote his heart and everything. Um, so, I mean, like, it's not that it doesn't work at all in the published Silmarillion, but it's a little hard to see how that line got in there. Well, you read The Shaping of Middle-Earth, and you read the Quentin, how this story went, and it's like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Yeah, in fact, from Turgon directly, Turgon as general of the army that's going to come and beat him up, right? He was going to be defeated, and Turgon was going to be the one who leads the assault that, that ends in his defeat, right? That is Turgon's at least potential destiny. It makes a lot more sense that Morgoth would therefore have a premonition around Turgon, right? Um, He's much more directly involved. So, okay. Um, That's where we were. And again, that's where we were last year. I don't mean last year when we were doing The Shaping of Middle-Earth. I mean, like, chronologically. This is, remember, he starts doing this fair copy of the Silmarillion stuff. Remember, we're, 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 we're Tolkien, we're writing up the Silmarillion for publication here, right, in the annals and in the Anuindale the, the and the Hlamas, all the stuff that we're doing right now. He's just, he's finished working it out. He just did the annals, right? He just did the Quenta. That's all very recent. He's not rewriting, he's just repackaging for publication, right? So it's very recent, but but yet, despite the fact that it's very recent, I am inclined to read this annal entry, and I know this is drawing a big conclusion on pretty slight evidence, so, you know, take it with the appropriate grain of salt, but I'm inclined to read this as suggesting that Tolkien is already changing his mind about that. Um, Not just about Turgon's particular role, but about the whole trajectory of the story. I cannot imagine that if the... uh, you know, Turgon's destiny to be, you know, the the bane of Morgoth uh, in this way, not the bane technically, but the downfall of Morgoth. Um, of course, you all remember who's supposed to be the bane of Morgoth. Who's the one who actually is going to run a sword through Morgoth and kill him in the last apocalyptic battle? Turin Turinbar, of course, right? Just whom we would have expected. Um, yeah, I know. It still blows my mind, too. But anyway, never mind. The point is, um, if Turgon was still meant to be, if that was the message that was being delivered, if Turgon was still meant to be the... It's hard for me to imagine that that doesn't come in here at all. It never even gets alluded to. Um, in fact, it seems to me, just from reading the annals, that that's already kind of being suppressed. Um that we're not going, and we'll see, we'll see how much we get in the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, but again, I'm inclined to say, the other thing here is the fact that Olmo, again, we're not even really told what Olmo's message is. Olmo, both in the earlier versions and in the later versions, almost kind of a big deal, right? I mean, like, he's the one who is, uh, uh, still holding Middle-earth in thought and speaking up for it. He's the one he claims 
Olmo claims in the embassy that he gives to Turin just in, in, in the more recent writings that he can he can rally all of the Valar, right? I will deliver the Valar uh, to support you if you march out and go. That's what he tells Turgon through Tuor. Um, that's, um, that's kind of a big deal. The Annals really push him aside. Right. And again, you know, maybe maybe that wasn't Tolkien's intention. Maybe he's kind of taking all that stuff for granted. But I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of doubtful of that. Um, we've seen, as we saw, you know, with the Fingolfin example that we did last time, that certainly in the annals, he's he's doing something. He's not just sort of he's obviously not trying to, like, milk all of the best drama out of all the stories in these entries, right? That's obviously not uh, what he's interested in. And in the context of this kind of an annal outline, right? Uh, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, the, the sort of the annal sketch of the whole plot so that you can keep everything straight. It does make a certain amount of sense that the passing of the kingship from Fingolfin to Fingon is actually more important than how heroic and awesome and tragic Fingolfin's duel with Morgoth was, right? I mean, that makes a certain kind of sense, given what it is that he's writing here. Um, but this is... Um, this is... This is a big... This is not just that kind of omission. This is not just like, oh, I'll gloss over the more exciting bits, right? Um, he gives no hint here at the actual role of Omo. Um or his prophecy, or his demand. Again, we don't, we're not even told what it is, which suggests that in the end, that wasn't all that important. Um, and um, and I think that's uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Now, Yana, I agree with you. Yana uh, finds it interesting that there are places, even in the annals, where he can't help but go into some detail, like the last stand of Hurin. I agree, uh, Yana. Um, we do still see those. Um, and yet, uh, at, anyway, it's to me the choice of the selection and the fact that what message was sent to Turgon is not sufficiently important anymore to make the cut is to me really, really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, Brian, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Brian Dimmick says, I wonder if the developing existence of a post-First Age story is affecting Tolkien's conception of the final events of the First Age. That's exactly what I was thinking from this. That perhaps, now that he does have that sequel rolling around, right? Uh, I mean, Turgon was like the final chapter of the First Age. I mean, it, it can, and I, I mentioned before, way back when we were looking at the fall of Numenor, that the original ending of the of the, the the Silmarillion story as it's used to stand before the before the Numenor stuff was pretty decisive, right? I mean it came to a pretty a pretty full conclusion. Turgon was a big part of the fullness of that conclusion. Um and so yeah, Brian, to to sort of make the end of the first age uh in that sense less uh well, I was going to say in less apocalyptic. I mean, of course, the War of Wrath is still pretty apocalyptic. I don't think I've ever used that phrase, pretty apocalyptic, before. It was, like, marginally apocalyptic. Like, you know, kind of apocalyptic. Um, but, but, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the difference is the role of the elves. Um it's not 
the clear and obvious sort of final climax of the story of the elves anymore. That's why Turgon, I mean, or at least that seems to fit with Turgon getting kind of pushed into the back seat here, no longer being in the spotlight at the end. Um, it also, we can also see this borne out by the fact that the, uh, um, the attack of Fionwe, the War of Wrath itself, obviously the elves are involved, but it's no longer, that's no longer primarily an elf story. Um, it's primarily a Valar story, right? Fionwe and his, uh, and his, and his people. And anyway, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, but anyway, so this is one, one little passage in the annals, which totally, uh, blew my mind. Of course, we can't pass by, uh, the, the next development in the story of the dwarves without any comment, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's good news and bad news, uh, for dwarf fans out there. Um, and let's, uh, let's, Let's let's read it first. In those mountains, the folk of Cranthir came first upon the dwarves, and there was and there was yet no enmity. But and there yes, and there was yet no enmity between them, and nonetheless little love. It was not known in those days whence the dwarves had their origin, save that they were not of elf kin or of mortal kind, nor yet of Morgoth's breeding. But it is said by some of the wise in Valinor, as I have since learned, that Aule made the dwarves long ago desiring the coming of the elves and men, for he wished to have learners to whom he could teach his crafts of hand, and he could not wait upon the designs of Iluvatar. But the dwarves have no spirit in dwelling, as have the children of the Creator, and they have skill, but not art, and they go back into the stones of the mountain of which they were made. Okay. Um, so, okay, the good news, the good news is... um. Uh, this, so here's, here's, uh, here's, here's, just in case you missed the good bit, here, here's the good news right here. Hey, wait a second. I've got, I've got a new toy I can play with. Watch this. Watch this. Here it comes. Ready? Wait for it. Okay. Hang on. I want to use, uh, 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 blue. Okay, here it goes. Ready? Oh, it's not working. Maybe I can use this. No? Darn it! Oh, well. It's not working. I'm supposed to be able to draw on the screen, which is cool. Anyway, okay. Ah, oh, so disappointing. I used it before. Come on now. How do you use this stupid thing? Of course it doesn't work. Classic. Doesn't work when you're actually in class. Oh, well. Never mind. Anyway, okay. Um, all right. My point is here, as I'll just do with my cursor in my old-fashioned, ineffective way. Nor yet of Morgoth's breeding. That's the key bit. Um, okay, so uh, they're not of elfkin, nor of mortal kind, which means they're not human. Um, nor yet of Morgoth's breeding. That's good news, because back in the old days, they used to be. Right? Uh, if you remember from back in the Book of Lost Tales, when we first met dwarves, they were creatures of Morgoth. They were monsters. Um, uh, they were, they were, they were, they were Morgoth's people. They were one of Morgoth's people, them and the orcs. So, 
Uh, so there we go. Like that's a step up in the world, right? They're not Morgoth's creatures anymore. We saw in the Quenta when we looked at the shaping of Middle Earth. We saw in the Quenta that the, the dwarves were kind of migrating in a positive direction. They were still not very friendly, right? They kind of held themselves aloof. They weren't totally on Morgoth's side, but they weren't totally on the elves' side either. Uh, in fact, they were explicitly playing both sides. They were um, they were encouraging an arms race among the elves and the orcs in order to enrich themselves. Right. Uh, They were they were they were doing arms deals with both sides. So, you know, they were not great and splendid people. Uh, But uh, but hey, at least they weren't actually creatures of Morgoth. And now they're definitely not creatures of Morgoth. So that's uh, that's a promotion, morally speaking, for the uh, for the dwarves. Um, And of course, this is the beginning of the Aule story. We've had we had no whisper of that before. So the story about Aule fashioning them in his impatience because he wanted to have learners to whom he could teach, that's new. This is now entering the Silmarillion tradition for the first time. Okay, so that's a that's a brand new thing. Um, but of course, it's not all good news for the dwarves, right? Uh, so, okay, so they're not elves and they're not mortals. Uh, they're made by Aule, but the problem is dwarves have no souls. That's that's uh, uh, sorry, but they're soulless creatures. They have skill, but not art. Right? I love that distinction. They have skill, but not art. So um, they've been uh, they've been made into making things by their father, the maker, Aule, right? But he doesn't. He can't give souls. He can't do that. He can fashion them, right? He can make them go. Um, now keep in mind, um, this is uh, seems to be sort of in keeping with Tolkien's thoughts generally about the Valar. Um, I, those of you who w- were here in the Book of Lost Tales class will remember that Morgoth made the orcs. He didn't kidnap elves and torture them or anything. He just manufactured orcs out of stone and slime and evil. Remember, we weren't given the secret recipe for how you proportion the, the hatred, the, and hatred, right? The, how you proportion the hatred, the stone and the slime in order to make uh, orcs secret recipe. But they were, they were manufactured creatures. Um, Tolkien we we can see that by the time we get later on, Tolkien has distanced himself from that idea that the power, you know, that that Morgoth has the power to actually make creatures of this kind. And I would actually say that the dwarves here in this depiction represent a kind of an interesting middle ground there. On the one hand, Aule is making creatures just like uh, Morgoth makes creatures, right? Or Morgoth, Morgoth makes the, the orcs. He makes the dragons in a similarly mechanical way, um, especially as we can see in the, uh, in the Fall of Gondolin from the Book of Lost Tales. The dragons also appear to be manufactured uh, creatures. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so he's, he's, he can do that. Aule can do that, apparently. Um, but yet we have this... They're, they're not just... They're not just like the children of Iluvatar, right? There's a difference between them and the children of Iluvatar because they are not, they don't have the secret fire that they can give to their creations, right? So, okay, so Aule can't make, which means orcs apparently have no souls either at this point, um, projecting based upon this, right? 
um, that orcs, uh, they, they, uh, just as the, the, the Aule was able to make creatures who had skill because Aule himself had skill. That's something he has to give. Right. Um, so Morgoth has what hatred and violence to give to the orcs. And he gives that. Um, and in doing that, he gives what he, what he's got. Right. But he doesn't have, um, uh, he doesn't have souls to give, so he doesn't uh, give them. Um, uh, now, so yeah, Tom notices the uh, that business about the survival of them going back to the stones of the mountains. You remember that gets alluded to in Appendix A in the Durin's Folk section that uh, you know this this sort of story exists. Some people still say that this is what happens to the dwarves when they die, but the dwarves themselves don't believe this, right? Um, even in this very annal, afterwards, there is a suggestion. It's, it's, he's beginning to kind of distance himself, right? To, to, to introduce the possibility that in saying this, uh, the elvish scribe, Pengalod, right? Pengalod and Rumil, who collaborated uh, on the annals, um, they don't necessarily know. Right. Um, and notice even the interjection of the first person, which is not common in the annals. It happens occasionally, but it's not the standard mode. Right. As I have since learned. Right. Um, uh, you know, we get that interjection to remind us that this is we're being told a story by a particular person. Right. Who may or may not have the entire story, in fact. Right. Um, uh, so that's interesting. But keep in mind now, this is written after The Hobbit is written. Okay, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that Thorin and company are exactly these dwarves, but this is the context that Thorin and company come from, um, and that's the, it's we were talking about that in the shaping of Middle Earth because the shaping of Middle Earth is what Tolkien seems to have been writing while he was writing The Hobbit. So when Thorin and company show up on Bilbo's front door, the dwarves, as they were depicted, you know, those arms dealers working with both sides of the of the of the conflict and everything, um, those were the dwarves. That's the context uh, for uh, uh, for the dwarves in The Hobbit. Um. So, um, yeah, yeah. But again, there's, he still does leave the door open for the idea that maybe this isn't the whole story, right? And maybe this is, uh, perhaps this is a limited or even a biased point of view, but certainly at least potentially a limited point of view. Now we'll come back to this. Uh, we're going to look at the dwarf passage in the Thlamas later on, and we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit. Um, by the way, just one last note about the Hobbit thing. Um, if you are tempted from this to draw the conclusion, well, this proves that like Thorin Oakenshield doesn't have a soul, right? Uh, no, I don't believe that. Um, if anything, I would actually take the conclusion in a quite different direction there. The fact that he's still talking about dwarves this way, even after he's written The Hobbit, suggests to me... Um, this seems to me to serve as evidence that he still has at least partially the firewall up between The Hobbit and the rest of his mythology. This is a really complicated argument. I don't have time to make this whole argument now, and I've never really, like, in one place put together all the evidence. Maybe I'll someday get a chance to do that. But um, 
I am pretty convinced that although The Hobbit is obviously deals with his mythology and he recycles elements from his mythology, that he did not envision The Hobbit story as really inhabiting the world of his mythology. He toys with that idea, but I think he rejects that idea. And I don't, it's, it doesn't get sort of fully reinvited back into his mythology until later, until the sequel, until the Lord of the... It's, it's at the Lord of the Rings that those two worlds really... The world that sort of grows from the Hobbit and the Silmarillion mythology that he's been doing, those really don't, like, get married and settle down and live happily ever after until the writing of the Lord of the Rings. That's, I, that's what I am personally convinced of. Um, and to me, this is, this is sort of further evidence um, of that. I think it's impossible to me um, to read The Hobbit um, and the story of Thorn and company um, and imagine this being true of them, that they don't have a, an indwelling spirit of their own. Um, uh, I don't think so. Um, but anyway, we'll, um, we'll, we'll get there. And James, yes, exactly. As you... If, assuming the electorate should choose to proceed through the history of the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the Shadow, and the Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring that we're, 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 we're setting up for next, um, we might see some more about, uh, about this kind of thing. Um, uh, Nancy says, so when he wrote this, he was just thinking of Meme. Well, Meme would be the primary. Meme was the big dwarf um, of the Silmarillion tradition. He's the biggest, most important dwarf character, and he was a hugely important dwarf character. I mean, the uh, Meme and the curse of Meme loom so large in the original Book of Lost Tales and the original Silmarillion stories. Um, it's like one of the most important things. The cursing of the gold by Meme is like one of the most powerful and important things that happens in the entire, in the entire story. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, Mary, exactly. Mary says, uh, in the Hobbit, the dwarves appreciate beauty. Absolutely. Right now. Exactly. I mean, I think it's, it just, it doesn't stand up. I mean, it, um, there are a bunch of ways. And again, we talked about this when we did the shaping of middle earth class. Um, if you look at what he says about the dwarves, how he describes the dwarves in the shaping of middle earth, and you kind of reread the Hobbit from that perspective, it really does open some things up. Um, and, uh, makes changes the story somewhat, and I think again makes some of the things that are said about the dwarves make it makes it make a little bit more sense. But what it, the impact ultimately that it has is to make the story of Thorin and Balin and the rest of the dwarves more special um, and more moving, really. Um, and the end of you know the, the 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 you know the end of Thorin's career, both more tragic and more beautiful. Um, whereas this, if we apply this um, through, it would well suck the soul out of the whole story. I mean, I I I can't I can't do it. I can't take this passage. I can't take this description of dwarves, and uh, fit. Balin and Thorin and Fiwi and Kiwi into this story, the story that this paragraph here is telling. I I, I can't, I can't, it doesn't work. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway, um, uh, yeah, okay, anyway, 
let's uh let's uh let's let's move on i'm only halfway through my my annals leftovers and and i uh i have plenty more to talk about um third random note from the annals um Hmm. What the heck is going on here? I'm sorry. Okay. Boy, now I couldn't advance the slide. Still can't advance the stupid slide. Hey, look! My pen is working! See all the little clicks? Look at that! Aha! Look at that! It decided to turn on randomly and now won't turn off again. Stupid thing. Okay, hang on. I gotta erase my pen. Whoop! All right. <laughs> oh, what a dumb thing. Okay. Okay. Number three, as I was attempting to say. Fionwe and the battle with Fionwe. Great war came now into Beleriand, and Fionwe drove the orcs and balrogs before him, and he camped beside Sirion, and his tents were as snow upon the field. He summoned now all elves, men, dwarves, beasts, and birds under his standard, who did not elect to fight for Morgoth. But the power and dread of Morgoth was very great, and many did not obey the summons. 350. Changed to 550. Here Fionwe fought the last battle of the ancient world, the great or terrible battle. Morgoth himself came forth from Angband and passed Taranafuin, and the thunder of his approach rolled in the mountains. The waters of Syrian lay between the hosts, and long and bitterly they contested the passage. But Fionwe crossed Syrian, and the hosts of Morgoth were utterly destroyed, and Morgoth fled back to Angband, pursued by Fionwe. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, not only because it, uh, you know, we see Morgoth not cowering in Angband and then finally, you know, cornered and thrown down, but actually coming out to me and we get this sort of epic conflict there, which is a different story than what we get later on. So the, that difference, of course, is itself a kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but to me, the thing that's most interesting is um, the fact that, and yeah, good, Marie says, not, you know, he says, look, he's, he's coming out to fight just like Sauron. Yeah, and Marie, didn't you notice that the, the something else that sounds just like the fight with Sauron, right? The business about uh, everything, even birds and beasts, uh, being called to Fionwe's standard, and they all have to choose whose side they're going to fight on. Um, remember, that's said about the battle on the, fi- the field of Daggerlad, that everything, um, even birds and beasts, took sides in that day, right? Um, so this is this that 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 concept. This, in fact, seems to be. Uh, prefiguring of the Battle of Daggerlad, really, um, and a lot of these elements, which are going to drop out, you know, th- these details, we're we're going to lose them, right, by the time we get to the published Silmarillion, um, but they're not going to be completely lost. We'll, we'll we'll see Tolkien incorporate that those ideas into the Battle of Daggerlad, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it does sound kind of Last Alliancey. I agree, Marie. Um, uh, so that that's uh, that's that's cool on its own. Um, but it is to me interesting in uh, in 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 a couple different ways. First, just Tolkien's depth of detail, and it's still not very deep depth of detail compared to you know other uh, uh, other writers uh, of like the military situation. Tolkien almost never talks about military tactics uh, very rarely. Um, I think the most intensely tactically described battle in all of Tolkien is the Battle of Five Armies um, with the slopes of the hill and the 
goblins coming up behind and uh, and all that stuff. He, he almost never does that um, in his stories. Um, I mean, like, we don't really know the tacticals much at all about the tactical situation uh, in the Battle of Pelennor Field. That's not really what it's about. Helm's Deep, Arthur, yes, yes. Um, I mean, it's a different situation, but yeah. Um, uh, it's still really about the story of the taking of the wall, um, rather than like sort of the, oh, anyway, point is, it's just not something that's just when Tolkien is describing a battle, that's not what he's, uh, that's not what he's interested in. Um, here we see him increasing in that level of detail. Um, the final battles, you know, the, the great battle when Fionnwe comes, um, was described in the earlier stories, but it was described very, very briefly. We didn't get all that much, uh, from it. We're getting more from it now. So, so the, the, the needle is moving in the direction of more detail, especially interesting considering that this is, uh, the annals, right? Um, so that's a little bit, uh, sort of countercultural, uh, in the annals context here. Um, and, um, uh, Okay, so that's one really small thing. Um, but in my mind, uh, what to me is really interested about the, what is Oh, good. Several of you are pointing to, um, uh, Nancy is pointing to the, uh, the disaster of the Gladden Fields and Unfinished Tales, uh, the, the, the story of Isildur and his disastrous last battle. And Josiah is pointing to the Battle of the Fords of Eisen, also in Unfinished Tales. Yes, what those two have in common is that's Tolkien at the very, near the very end of his life. That's, that's, he's, that's, that's way down the road. Um, and when he's not telling stories, um, in those things, he's not telling stories. He's like supplying backstory and giving deep. He's digging deep into stuff. And so, yeah, he digs deeper. Um, but, uh, but that's not, that, that's, that's what he's going to be doing in that phase of his career, but he's not there yet. Um, so, um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, and again, please, you know, some of you seemed almost sort of uh, uh, inclined to sort of defend Tolkien about this. I'm totally not criticizing Tolkien when I say that he didn't. I'm just, I mean, literally what I say, he doesn't seem interested in that. Uh, the, the Battle of Pelennor Field is, uh, you know, one of the greatest descriptions of battles in, in you know, certainly in fantasy literature, you know, modern fantasy literature. Um, I don't miss the tactical details. Uh, that's fun. I enjoy tactical details, um, but that's not just, it's not what he's interested in. And I, I don't blame him. I like what he's interested in. Uh, and I am also interested in it. And I think it makes an awesome story. Um, uh, but anyway, it's, again, so that's just, but it's just why to me, this shift in the direction of increasing military detail seemed to me really noteworthy here. Um, and why it's noteworthy to me is that it seems to be a very different impulse uh, from the impulse to sort of make it more purely mythic, which is what I saw before, right? Um, and um, and that's interesting to me, you know, that, that it becomes, it makes the whole last battle more tangible. I mean, think about how it's described in the published Silmarillion, right? Um, where we're told almost no details about it, but just that, like, Mountain ranges fell and crumbled and, and like, you know, we don't even know. But in the end, Morgoth was thrown down, right? Um, it gives this sort of ineffable, epic, you know, mythic grandeur to the entire thing. But no details. Um, the idea that Tolkien went in the opposite direction of that 
in the annals. That's interesting to me. Um, uh, and I wonder uh, if it doesn't have to do... Um, who is it that I was talking about this before? Brian? Was it you? Um, about the introduction of the of the Numenor story, right? Um, and the impact of that. Um, that because this is no longer the end point now, right? This is uh, this is an intermediate point in the history. Uh, it's the end of the Annal of Balerion, but it's not uh, the end of you know the history of these tales. Uh, and so I wonder if that perhaps plays into it. Don't know, but um, that seems plausible. Last point, and then we're moving on to the Aino Lindelay. Um, Elrond. We can't leave Elrond, right? We've got to track, we've got to continue tracking as we've been tracking all along the growth and development of Elrond's character, which is, I think, really interesting and fascinating. Okay. In this year, Feanwe departed and went back to Valinor with all his folk, and with them went most of the gnomes that yet lived and the other elves of Middle-earth. But Elrond the half-elfin remained and ruled in the west of the world. All right. There we go. Right? Um, uh, Elros is going to be born soon, right? We've already seen him written back into the story in The Fall of Numenor, right? We've seen him added as a later uh, addition. And uh, uh, Christopher Tolkien said that he thinks it was from not too far down the road, right? This is not years later, him coming back and adding Elros, um, but pretty soon. So not long after the original composition of this, the story of Elros is going gonna, is gonna to finally come in. Um, but it's still not there yet. And... We can see, at least it seems to me more and more clear why, where, where the story of Elros comes from, right? Um, why, do we, why do we get Elros? Why is Elrond given a brother? Because he wants to clone Elrond, right? I mean, remember the Numenorean story, right? Fall of Numenor, last version of the Fall of Numenor, what happened? Elrond becomes king of Numenor. Right. That's the logical sort of fulfillment of Elrond's story, the logical, you know, sort of the, the, the this this logical last connection between Numenor and the stories of Beleriand. Right now, the sequels really seamless. Right. If we bring Elrond in. So we see that that impulse on the one hand, we need to make Elrond the king of the king of Numenor and therefore through Elrond, as we see in the Lost Road, to have the kings of Numenor be descended from Eärendil. Right. OK, cool. So Elrond, obviously, we're going to work him right in as the king of Numenor. Um, but, um, um, uh, okay. So, um, that's, that's one side, but then there's the other side and that's this one, right? And you're writing the annals of Balerion. Well, what, but isn't Elrond, there are elves that remain, right? We know that there are elves that remain. Um, there always have been elves that remain. There have to be elves that remain, or there wouldn't be so many legends about elves and stories and fairy tales and things. Uh, like, cause there wouldn't be any fairies to tell the stories about if the elves didn't remain. So obviously elves remain. So having Elrond be the one who is the, you know, at the core of, uh, the, you know, sort of the, the, the Lord of the elves who remain in the earth, totally logical, right? So he's the, he's the culmination of the story of Beleriand. He's the king of Numenor, right? But he can't really do both. And we see him, we saw in the fall of Numenor, we saw him waffling, right? You know, in, in the, in the revisions that Christopher Tolkien was describing, we see him waffling about whether Elrond should actually go out to Numenor or not. Right. Um, so 
he has his cake and eats it too, <laughs> right? In the end, we're going to clone Elrond. We're going to give him a brother, Elros, and then one of them can be king of Numenor, and the other can remain as lord, kind of lord, anyway, real important figure among the elves who remain, and boy, whew, problem solved, right? Now all we need to do is give him a brother, and he can do both, right? Um, uh, okay, so that, again fascinating to watch Elrond's story develop. We'll check back in with Elrond, of course, when we get to the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, now, let's talk about the Aino Lindelay. Remember where we are again in the Silmarillion process, right? What is the Silmarillion? The Silmarillion appears to be this multi-part collection, right? We've looked, been looking at the annals, right? And when we started looking at the annals last time, we were talking about this, you know, we're prepping the Silmarillion for publication, right? Step one, write out a fair copy of the annals so we can get all that stuff straight. Again, not as background information, not as like, let me work out this story, but as publication material. This is part one of the Silmarillion, the annals of Valinor and Beleriand. Part two of the Silmarillion, the Aino Lindelay. Part three of the Silmarillion, the Hlamas, right? So the things that we're reading, this is, this is, these are, this is the Silmarillion as Tolkien envisions it when he imagines taking it off a shelf after it's published, looking through the table of contents. This is how, presumably, something like this is how it's going to go. Right. Okay. Also, remember, I don't know if you caught it, that brief note that Christopher Tolkien said where he was like, oops, my bad. In the shaping of Middle-earth, he included the Embarcanta, um, which also is in fair copy and seems to be worked up for publication. And Christopher Tolkien made that one brief note that, like, actually, really, in retrospect, he should have included the Embarcanta in this volume of History of Middle-earth and not in the last one because he's he beco- becomes convinced over time that it actually belongs in this set. So the Annals, the Anuindaway, the Lamas, and the Embarcanta are part of this whole preparing the Silmarillion for publication thing. Um the Embarcanta, for those of you who haven't read it or have already forgotten it, um, is that description of like the cosmology, not the cosmogony. That's a different thing. Um, but the cosmology, like the, you know, the, 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 you know, ilment, you know, the air and uh, via the sea and, and the land and all those diagrams and things about the symmetrical world and then how it gets all messed up and, uh, and all that, all that stuff, right? That's, that's the Embarcanta. That was going to be part of, uh, part of this here too. So now one is inclined, one is inclined to ask the question, whom does Tolkien think he's appealing to here, right? He, he wants to get this published, right? This is his great work that he's trying to bring out. He's written The Hobbit, right? And that was kind of a sidelight and that was fun and everything, but that's not what he really wants to do. It's obvious that's not what he really wants to do, right? I mean, if that were what he really wanted to do, if he really wanted to become a, a children's author, right? If he really, really wanted to become like the next Lewis Carroll or, uh, you know, the next, um, oh, what's the, I'm blanking on the name. Shoot. The name of the author of uh, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. Anyway, whatever. If you wanted to be the next, uh, 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 you know, one of those, or even the next, uh, you know, A.A. A. Milne or whatever, um, perfectly respectable thing to do. If he'd wanted to do that, he could have done. He had the opportunity to do that. Indeed, that's what his publisher wanted from him, right? The Hobbit was great. Everyone loved The Hobbit. They, you know, the publisher comes to him and says, can you please do more of this? And it it seems perfectly clear that what the publisher meant was, I would like a series of like episodic books, um, maybe related in, in, you know, in, in a long series, perhaps the continuing adventures of Bilbo Baggins himself, if not like sequels about other hobbits. But I, I want a series of hobbit stories uh, that are going to be 
no, not even like, um, not even like Narnia, Marie, more like, um, like Roald Dahl, Carrie, possibly in some way. Um, uh, like, um, um, oh shoot, I'm blanking. What was I going to say? Um, no, more like one of those, uh, like interminable children's series, like the Dr. Doolittle books, which, uh, Tolkien's children, including Christopher read and really liked, um, and which were this really, really long serial um, set of adventures, or even to choose a more modern example, something like the Boxcar Children. Any of you have read the Boxcar Children books, right? It's just like let's just keep 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 pumping them out, right? Um, not just, and this is where I, I don't think Roald Dahl works because his books are all sort of independent, right? It's not, but to have like this one world in which. Um, uh, in which, you know, this stuff happens kind of like Redwall. Yeah, sure. Something like that. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what the publisher wanted. Clearly that's what the publisher wanted, right? Keep the Hobbit books coming. Um, everyone loves this. So let's do this. If that was what Tolkien wanted, he had it right. It was there for him, but that's not what he wanted. That's not what he was. That's not what he, I mean, he couldn't fake that. Um, and he didn't want to fake that. So when the publisher says, people are begging for more, you know, J.R.R., what do you got for me? And he's like, here, Annals, Anulindulay, Lamas, Ambarcanta, and I'm working on the Quintus Silmarillion, right? Uh, really? Right? That's what you've got for me, right? This is where you're going with this? Who was he appealing to? Um, so remember... It's so, to me, it's so difficult to imagine this, right? Um, there must exist. I am sure there exists somewhere. People who happened across the published Silmarillion read and loved the published Silmarillion and only discovered The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings after. Um, I'm sure that's happened. So, I mean, the world is far too large and complicated. Hey, who knows? Maybe even uh, 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 one of you here tonight is like that. Um, that's not normal. That's not usual. I mean, I don't mean to judge anybody who happens to have had that experience. Um, but, um, uh, but, but anyway, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's not normal. Um, almost everybody who comes to the Silmarillion comes to it from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? I know I did, right? I found The Silmarillion years after I had been reading The Lord of the Rings. Um, and um, and I, 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 you know, and it's like, hey, great, more. And I, you know, I was put off at first because I wanted there to be more exactly like, um, exactly like the, the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. And it wasn't just more of, this, of The Lord of the Rings. It was something quite different. I wasn't really at all prepared for it. Um, but then later I came to love it. Um, but I came to love it as a person who is already in love with the Lord of the Rings and the world that it's describing, right? It gave me more of something I already had developed a taste for through the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, so we have to basically take that, take that off the market, right? Take that out of the equation entirely. So uh, we've gotten, there are no fans of the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, it's not even for fans of The Hobbit. He's not trying to appeal to fans of The Hobbit here, right? I mean, like, maybe the publisher in desperation would doubtless try to do something like that, right? For those of you who really like The Hobbit and are really interested in that and stuff, um, there's 
quite a lot more information about some things very tangentially alluded to in The Hobbit, right? I mean, you could kind of kind of strain it, but again, it's not like it's going to draw Hobbit fans, nor does, is there any evidence from these texts that he was working on appealing to Hobbit fans. Now, um, uh, um, let's see. Uh, somebody was asking a good question, and I've missed it. Um, uh yeah, Karita asks, does anyone else feel sorry for the publisher? Yeah, yeah, Karita. Some of um, Stanley Unwin's responses are, are are extremely like cautious and generous and thoughtful, uh, and I can only imagine what he was really thinking. But anyway, um, Kat, there it is. Cat Turner had asked, was he really writing for others? I always felt like he was more writing for himself. Well, see, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, sure. I mean, on the one sense, he was absolutely writing for himself, and that, like, this is, it's not like he was like, I want to get rich and famous, and by golly, this is my ticket, right? Um, in order, in in order to uh, fulfill my, because there are people who do this, right? There are people who set out to be a writer, um, not because they really have something they want to write, but because they want to become a famous writer, right? Well, okay, but the only way to become a famous writer is I've got to write something good. So I need to think of something good to write in order to become a famous writer, right? I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure you've known, I've known people, you know, who've kind of approached it from that angle, and absolutely, that was not Tolkien, right? He was. Uh, he was writing these stories because he loved them, right? And and so in that sense, he was certainly writing for himself and would have carried on writing had, uh, you know, there never been any question of publication at all. However, it's very clear that he wanted this stuff to be published. And he talked about this in his letters. He, you know, that he, he, um, he wants to share it. Um, he feels that like it's not it's not good enough just to write it himself. That didn't satisfy. Um, he wanted to share it with others. He always wanted. His not he will spend. He spent what forty fifty years wanting to get trying to get the Silmarillion published. Um, he really 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 wanted that. Um, yeah, James, I agree. Some of Christopher's commentary uh, is really funny in the way like where. Christopher Tolkien never comes out and is like, let's get this straight. This is not really that good and it's totally not worth publishing. And the, the, But he does kind of uh, offer some sort of, you know, he's not, uh, he he certainly doesn't go the other direction, right? He's not like, I really cannot, cannot understand what the publishers are saying. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, so so he definitely wanted to share it. And again, the, the the evidence that we have from these, just the formation of these texts that we're reading here themselves, he's bringing this together, and we know he's going to submit it to the publisher, um, who's going to be deeply uncomfortable and squirming because they don't um, they don't want to um, they don't want to you know, the the publisher he doesn't want to uh, discourage him right he doesn't want to. Uh, um, uh, you know, just brush Tolkien off. And indeed, there was a lot of tension between Stanley Unwin and Tolkien later on. I mean, the, there's a bit of a, you know, a lot of drama going on around the publication of The Lord of the Rings, um, which we don't have to get into now. But um, anyway, it's it's uh, I, that's that was sort of a real pickle for the publisher to be in. But but again, OK, so who is Tolkien trying to, to appeal to here? Um not fans of The Hobbit, right? Not, obviously, totally different from the children's literature we're looking at in The Hobbit. Totally different from the adult fantasy genre that he did not invent, but basically popularized 
you know, made mainstream through the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's not Lord of the Rings fans. Exactly. I mean, a certain subset of Lord of the Rings fans, sure. But um, uh, I don't, just going to go out on a limb here and say I don't see the uh, uh, the Silmarillion as composed here with Annals, Hlamas, Anulindale, right? I don't see this like becoming adopted by the American, uh, you know, countercultural movement. In the, I don't see like hippie college students embracing this in the '60s, right? If this is all that's published, it's just it's it's not it's not the same as the Lord of the Rings at all. Um, so what is it exactly? I mean, it's really odd, right? I mean, it's this. On the one hand, we do have the frame. Right. And when I talked about this last time, um, it's we do have this the the found text frame of all of these texts. Right. That these all came. These are these are relics that have been found. So there's this sense of unearthing a fictitious history. Um, But you have to be interested in some kind of sort of very particular things. You have to be just kind of like Alboin, basically. Uh, in the Lost Road, Albuin would have loved this. It would have been Albuin's favorite book ever, right? Um, but if you're not, if you're not like Albuin, uh, I, I don't know. So I, you know, I do have to say I'm not at all convinced that Tolkien really kind of had his finger on the pulse of um, of you know popular culture at the time uh, in his plan uh, for uh, for writing. So it, uh, more for scholars, Patricia is asking, and uh, and. Uh, um, uh, James Leibach was asking that too, like for, for, you know, Lewis and his friends and the Inklings and stuff, sort of, sort of, um, except it's not normal for scholars to write about this either. I mean, you don't just have to be a scholar. You have to be a particular kind of scholar. Um, you know, either a sort of an amateur whose tastes are sufficiently sort of scholarly to to dig it or a scholar whose sort of attitude is sufficiently easygoing to be cool with it. (laughs) Right. Um, it's, um, it's a, it's a narrow market. It's, it's, it's a real niche market. He seems to be, uh, he seems to be going for here, uh, with the Aino Lindale or with the, the Silmarillion as a whole. Um, so um, let's let's just acknowledging that and thinking about. It. I mean, I, I just I find as I'm as I'm studying these things carefully and thinking this through, I keep returning to this question. I keep I keep imagining. You know, as I'm reading these, I, I, I'm sort of keep reminding myself. Okay, this is the text that Tolkien was preparing to send off for publication. Like this is at least at this point, this is his vision for the Silmarillion. What is it a vision of exactly? How does it work? Um, to me, that's a really fascinating question. It's way too complicated a question just to be answered, uh, you know, here in a couple minutes. Um, something to be thought about and thought about in connection with a whole bunch of other things, which is why I wanted to uh, just sort of th- throw it out here. But but okay, uh, let's turn to the Aino Lindale now. So uh, what are we looking at with the Aino Lindale? So first of all, the impulse to include the Aino Lindale, as Christopher Tolkien points out at the very beginning of the Aino Lindale chapter, 
Down and Away has been AWOL for a long time. This goes back to the Book of Lost Tales, the, 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 the first full story that's told, right? The sort of the first chapter of the Book of Lost Tales is just frame, right? Establishing this frame, Ariel arrives in Tolerasea and gets brought into the College of Lost Play, and he's made little to go with the little elves, just roll with it. And, uh, and you know, he hears the stories around this, the, 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 the tail fire, and all's well. Um, the first one that he hears from Rumil is the story of the music of the Ainur. But ever since then, the music of the Einar story has never been retold. So when he returns to the story, so remember the, the trajectory, right? Book of Lost Tales leaves that behind, tells each one, of, or not each one, but you know, starts telling the different main central epic stories in, 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 in poetic form, leaves that behind, comes back to the synopsis plot summary genre, or really invents the plot summary genre, right? With a sketch of the mythology, then developed into the Quinta, then the annals working from there. Um, but that whole time, so in this third movement of the Silmarillion development, he's not dropped, but he's never told the music of the Einar story. The story of the music of the Einar goes this. So here he's reaching directly back to the um, uh, to the Book of Lost Tales, right? So why? Why do that? I mean, you know, all of the other versions are like it starts with the Allfather, right? And he creates the Valar and he creates the world and then go, right? Then we've got the Valar and then we're good. Um why do it for the sense for the sake of thoroughness, right? I don't buy that. Because again, it's not like it was in a gaping hole. It's not like you would read the Quenta or even the Annals and be like, but 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 what's the creation story, right? I mean, maybe if you were just especially interested in creation stories, you might say that, but it doesn't seem to me like a like a like a gaping hole in the story, right? I mean it's acknowledged, right? We got the Alpha, so you've got you've got God, he creates the world, he creates the Valar, and then this is the story of what the Valar did in the world, right? Fine, go about your business. Um so I don't think that just simply like completionism is what led him to include um, the Ainu Lindelay. Is it because he like regretted omitting it? Like he really likes the story of the music of the Ainu, and he's so he's so he's sitting there as he's preparing the Silmarillion for publication, and he's like, you know, that story about the music was really cool. I should go rework that because man, you know, it's not in the Quint or anything like that. But I really, I really miss it. Maybe, maybe he does. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, uh, but to me, what's really striking is the way in which he goes back to the book of lost tales um look at the this is this is christopher i don't usually do this but this is a a long patch of christopher text i wanted to quote in all the works given in this history so far there has been only one account of the creation of the world and that is in the old tale of the music of the ainur written while my father was at oxford on the staff of the dictionary in 1918 to 1920 1918 to 1920. So we're talking at least 15 years before he's doing what we're reading in this book. The sketch of the mythology, S, makes no reference to it, and the Quinta and the AV1 only mention in their opening sentences the making of the world and the making of all things by Iluvatar, and AV2 adds nothing further. But now, among the later writings of the 1930s, he turned again to the tale told by Rumil to Ariel in the Garden of Marvanya Tialieva in Cortirian, that's in the, book of, the frame of the Book of Lost Tales, and wrote a new version. And it is remarkable that in this case he went back to the actual text of the original music of the Ainur. The new version was composed with the Lost Tale in front of him, and indeed he followed it fairly closely, though rephrasing it at almost every point, a great contrast to the apparent jump between the rest of the Valinorian narrative in the Lost Tales and the sketch, where it seems possible that he wrote out the condensed synopsis without rereading them. Right? So, okay, so... 
he left he had left the lost tales behind and they were they were way behind i mean you know i don't know about you but i don't <laughs> i was reflecting i was like gosh i don't even remember what i said in the shaping of middle earth class and that was only a couple months ago right i can't blame tolkien for not like really remembering everything that he wrote in the book of lost tales 20 years before right i mean what was i writing 20 years ago i mean could i tell you anything about the essays that i wrote in college 20 years ago i don't think i could you know i, I mean <sighs> Pretty sketchy memories of it, right? So, so you know, whatever. It's fine. It's not shocking that when this third movement of the Silmarillion development, as this is my terminology, the third movement thing, when this third movement of the Silmarillion development begins with the sketch of the mythology and the Quenta, that he's starting not from scratch. I mean, it's not like he's totally left behind the Lost Tales. But as Christopher Tolkien suggests, it's possible that he wrote that without even rereading the Lost Tales. Um, he still kind of got it all in mind, but the story's developing and changing, and he doesn't... So he's not like, I shall preserve the Lost Tales and bring it forward. And indeed, a lot of the mechanism um, of the Lost Tales um, is seems to be going, right? Gone or going. Um, and the structure of it, the sort of the, the frame, the metatextual frame, seems to be quite different. Um... So what to me is really noticed, it's not just, hey, I think, I, you know, that music of the Einar, I, 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 th I think I'm going to tell the story about the music, right? It's not just that. No, I'm going to go back to the Book of Lost Tales, and I'm going to redo that story. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what is really just a new draft of that old Lost Tales story, which, is, which he hasn't done in decades. He hasn't done that, right? But now he's chosen to reach back to the Book of Lost Tales um, and revive it. And it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a shift uh, in the whole, like, what the Silmarillion is now and what he's doing with the Silmarillion now. Um, uh, but there's another thing here at play, I think, and that is that he... It fills a bit of a gap. Um, remember, I, I was emphasizing last time that the thing that we see in the annals, what, what I think that, you know, to me, the real selling point of the annals is the found text idea, right? The fact that there's, that it contains that coding of, you know, how, who wrote it and how it was written and how it came down to us, kind of how it came down to us. That's the weak link, right? We get the whole rumil of, uh, you know, of Toon and, uh, and, and Pen lot of Gondolin, right? So that we've got the, the Beleriandic scribe and the, and the Valinorian scribe um, who both sort of tell different accounts of these stories, or like the one picks up where the other leaves off, right? So we get that sort of textual history behind the annals um, explicitly in the in the voice of Pengalot, who speaks to us in the first person about this stuff, uh, sort of reviewing his sources, right? And, and showing what's his and what's Rumil's. Um, but careful readers might be thinking, but wait a second. How do we get this, right? Or even, um, as I was thinking myself when I almost talked about this last time but didn't get to it, um, what about that passage where, remember where Rumil tells the story of how Finrod, uh, remember Finrod whose name will later be changed to Finarfin, right? How Finrod hears the, the prophecy of the North and goes back to Valinor? Right, and doesn't go off with, doesn't continue with Feanor and Fingolfin across the sea. And it's right at that point when it goes back and it tells them about how they were received. Remember how Aule like unfriends the, you know, he like defriends the Noldor when they return, right? They, they never get back into the good graces of Aule again when they return. And right after that, Pengalod says, okay, that's all we got from Rumil, right? So, uh, so here's, here's the rest of what I got. 
and what I saw, you know, from a Beleriandic standpoint. So, okay, that's cool, right? Yeah, sure. Rumil is from Valinor, so he knows the story of what happened back in Valinor, whereas Pengalod was, you know, with presumably with Fingolfin, right, as he ended up in Gondolin. So, um, uh, so he knows what's went on in Beleriand. So we get both sides. We can tell the whole story from the annals, and that's all good, right? Except, how did he get the text, right? How did what Rumil wrote about the return of the Noldor get to Pengalod in Gondolin? And how did both of them get to us? as readers. That's not explicitly laid out in the story within the text itself, right? Re-enter the Lost Tales frame, right? Alfwine goes to Tol Erisea, and it's through Tol Erisea that, you know, Rumil and Pengalod can compare notes and collaborate on the annals, and they can get sent back with Alfwine to the human world, no problem, right? We're going to get there. You know, we do get there. But the lost ta- he goes back to the Lost Tales frame as that bridge, seeing and apparently desiring that bridge between the Elvish historians and, you know, uh, 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 you know uh, um, sages who are writing this stuff. Um, and we, the modern human audience, uh, who, are, who are reading them. Um, Okay, so anyway, let's uh, let's let's look at the text itself here a little bit. Oh, we we definitely need to look at the text itself. Um, and I want to be focused not just on changes. I mean, I, I'm not going to do a close like examination of the changes from the Book of Lost Tales. It's been way too long since we talked about the Book of Lost Tales again. I don't even remember what I said about the Book of Lost Tales. Um, uh, but um, and besides, this text is really pretty close to the published Silmarillion. Um, so, you know, you can do that sort of comparison uh, on your own. Instead, I want to look at a few passages that are suggestive about the mythology itself. And I, I emphasize that because, again, it seems that, again, if I ask this back to my big question about what does Tolkien think he's doing, right? What what is What is this thing that he's calling the Silmarillion that he's putting up for publication? Well, at the very least, this is... This is a mythology. That's a word that he keeps using, right? Um, so what does the Ainulindale tell us about the mythology? What does it contribute? Yeah, of course, it, can, it tells us details about how this happened, right? But we didn't need it for that purpose. Again, what's said in the Quenta and the Annals and all that stuff is, is fine, right? God created the world. God created the Valar. Thank you, right? No holes there, no gaps, right? We don't need more information about that. Um, so again, it's not just to supply us with facts that he does this, but rather, what do we learn about the mythology itself? How does the Aino Indole help us to... How does it help to sort of contextualize the larger mythology? That seems to me to be the role of the Aino Indole um, and the, the sort of the place or the purpose that it seems to fill within this collection of Silmarillion texts that Tolkien is currently preparing for publication. So um, uh, we can see through the Aino Indole him providing a kind of framework for the gods, right? The gods don't just kind of come out of nowhere. I mean, they don't come out of nowhere. They come from Iluvatar, but, but still, like... You know what does that mean, and 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 what what was that like, and who are they, and where are they from, and um, what do we know about them? Um, this kind of backstory, the kind of context, um, is what is one of the main things that we're given um, in the Ainulindale. Notice how the shift in the Ainulindale, how it shifts from narrative, right, the narrative of the music and the disruption of the music, to talking about the characters of the Valar, right. What's Aule like? What's Ulmo like? 
What's Manway like? And how do they work together? Right? That seems to me, that's, it's not a distraction from the story. It's, this is not a, this is not Tolkien getting, you know, sort of running down a side path here. That seems to be the whole point, really, of the Aino Indolay. It helps us to understand who are these Valar people anyway. How are they related to each other? How are they related to God in the entire sort of theological and metaphysical structure of this mythology? And uh, and how does all that work? That seems to be what the Aino Indolay is really interested in, in telling us, so that's what I want to focus on. What do we learn about that? Um, this is, of course, the passages I want to look at are not all that we learn about that, and I want to move kind of quickly if we're ever to get to the Lamas at all today. Um, but... Um, Anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's jump into this. Okay, first passage I want to talk about, the desire of the Valar. This is the desire, this is the Valar choosing uh, to enter into the world. But even as they gazed, many became enamored of the beauty of the world and engrossed in the history which came there to being, and there was unrest among them. Thus it came to pass that some abode still with Iluvatar beyond the world, and those were such as had been content in their playing with the thought of the Allfather's design caring only to set it forth as they had received it. But others, and among them were many of the wisest and fairest of the Ainur, craved leave of Iluvatar to enter into the world and dwell there, and put on the form and raiment of time. For they said, We desire to have the guidance of the fair things of our dreams, which they might, which thy might has made to have a life apart, and we would instruct both elves and men in their wonder and uses when the times come for thy children to appear upon earth. Okay. This is a really interesting passage. Now, of course, you will also notice that many of the passages that I am focusing on here are passages that are, in fact, different from what came before and from what comes after. Um, uh, But it's not just for the sake of tallying up differences that I want to that I want to do this again where are we here um, uh, yeah Sharon I absolutely agree the word unrest that's what really jumped out at me first about this passage too um, it's that's fascinating um, yeah uh, it shows difference without defiance says Sharon and I agree it does not show defiance um, but this to me is the question Is the desire to enter into the world and the history of the world good or not? I don't think that's a simple question. I don't think it's a black and white question at all. Um, We can't say anything as simple as it was wrong for them to go, right? That unrest is a red flag. I think that's a, a possible reading. Um, I'm not very convinced by it, mostly because of the wisest and fairest business, right? I mean, if they were wisest, then presumably, you know, they're not all like just being suckers. Um, exactly. Nancy uh, Fosberg was just saying exactly the same thing. It's obviously not a terrible idea because of the wisest and fairest thing. Right. And yet, right? Um, and yet, you may remember that in the published Silmarillion, the emphasis is their love for Arda. It's their love that draws that draws them right and makes them want to go and it's that is the impulse is all positive we we want to be you know we we love it we want to be a part of it we want to take care of it um and it seems pretty much sort of unequivocally um uh 
positive, right? Good, I mean, not positive, but good. Um, here, there's a negative thing, right? That is, if we don't go, we will feel unhappy, right? Um, we will not be content unless we go. Um, the word content is used, right? That's the, the, the other camp, right? The, uh, those of the Ainur who are not going to become the Valar, right? Those other Ainur um, were content, and that's good, right? Being content is good. Being content with the All-Father's design, that seems like a good thing, right? Contentment with the All-Father's design. Okay. Um, but um, setting it, you know, so the, the, one, the, the unrest also seems to come from this impulse to create and to subcreate, right? To adorn the theme with their own uh, with their own powers, which is good, which is right and appropriate, though, as we see in Melko's case, not unequivocally a good thing, right? So, um, anyway, it's it's just interesting. It's sort of really complicated. I think that we can see um, a few things here. One is that I think... It's supposed to be, this is supposed to be kind of an ambiguous moment, right? Um, absolutely. See, Murray, that's that's half the story, right? It is true when Tolkien talks about subcreation, he's typically praising it. It's a good thing. That subcreative impulse is a good thing. Um, the the you know the the fruition of the subcreative impulse is a good thing, and part of Iluvatar's design clearly part of his design. We see that explicitly spelled out in the beginning of the story of the music in the Ainur, where he's where he says, I'm content but sit back here and listen to you play, right? As, you know, I designed the music, but you guys do your thing. It's going to be awesome, right? This is what Iluvatar says to them at the beginning. He totally approves of this, and yet that impulse, the fulfilling of the subcreative impulse often is what also goes wrong in Tolkien stories. Most of the biggest bad guys, the most, you know, most of the biggest mistakes ever made in the history of Tolkien's world were made by sub-creators. Um, Melkor is a sub-creator. Feanor is a sub-creator, right? I mean, the, the Noldor in general were the most sub-creative of all the... Of the so anyway, it's... it's uh, and then Marie, exactly, thinking of the unrest of the Noldor. Yeah, that's... it's Marie, I can't help but think of the unrest of the Noldor. Um when he's using the word unrest, right? That's, that's, that's immediately what pops into my head. So, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's ambiguous, but I think it's meant to be ambiguous. I don't think this is supposed to be a black and white thing. We're not supposed to be like, Oh, the Valar never should have that was, that was mistake. Number one going down into the world, right? They've got to learn their lesson. I don't think it's nearly as simple as that. And yet I think it does show that the Valar themselves have freedom, which also means freedom to screw up. And that there's at least sort of the open question here, they may be screwing up, right? In going to Arda, they are driven by love and curiosity and desire to make things and guide things. And that's all good. Those are all good things. But their lack of contentment is perhaps a red, is perhaps a red flag, right? That at least there's the potential that they're not always going to make the right call, as Mary says, and yeah, there are Mary and Marie are two different people, and I'm trying. I, I hope I don't uh, uh, screw it up when I talk about when I talk to you two. Um, as Mary says, it shows they had the freedom to choose, and I think that that's a that's a big part of the point here. What we, if this passage does say 
something clearly to me, what it says is they're left with the freedom to choose. And they have the ability to choose. They can choose well, they can choose poorly, and we can see the possi- the, op- the opportunities for them to do both. And by choosing poorly, it doesn't just have to mean like becoming a ty- the tyrant of the world and trying to dominate all wills like Morgoth. Um, I mean, like, that's a bad choice, obviously, but it's not like that's the only possible bad choice, right? Tolkien's world is not nearly, though, despite what um, most people, or so many people who uh, who don't really read Tolkien say, Tolkien's world is nothing like that black and white. Um, we have seen from the Book of Lost Tales forward, the Valar are always complicated moral figures. Um, they're always screwing up. Um, and doing, you know, doing, uh, as we say in uh, the film film project, doing the, the, the right thing for the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, that um, that that uh, so I, I th- that seems to me a thing from the very beginning. So this. Uh, p- the position of the, the position that this establishes the Valar in is really fascinating. On the one hand, they have like great authority in the in the world right they are the delegated powers and yet they're also moral agents who themselves are not like really clear on their own remit and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing we, again we see this openness for them to choose the emphasis being placed essentially on you know Mary as you say on their on their freedom to choose that puts things in a uh in a a totally different light and encourages us to think about the story of the Valar and the story of how the elves and men relate to the Valar, I think, in a very different way. So in as much as the, uh, the Aino Lindale is providing a sort of a framework for us to, to, to understand better, or at least understand differently, uh, the stories that we're going to read, this certainly, you know, if we think about it, really has, uh, really has a big impact. How about Melko? What do we see about Melko? Melko for a long while walked alone. And he wielded both fire and frost. This is not Melko walking alone in the void. This is after the creation of the world. And he wielded both fire and frost from the walls of the world to the deepest furnaces that are under it. And whatsoever is violent or immoderate, sudden or cruel, is laid to his charge. And for the most part, justly. Love that addition. And for the most part, justly. He did most of that stuff. But again, you see the opening that that provides, right? People want to blame every bad thing that happens on Morgoth. And it's true that, like most of it, really is his fault. But not all of it, right? For the most part, justly. Not all of it is Morgoth's fault. Some of it comes from other places, right? And maybe even comes as the consequence of good people like the Valar doing what they think is the right thing for really good and honorable reasons, but it doesn't really work out. Yep. (laughs) Yes, Marie says... Some of it is Asse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. All right. But anyway, keep going. Few of the divine race went with him. And of the children of Iluvatar, none have followed him since, save as slaves. And his companions were of his own making. The orcs and demons that long troubled the earth, tormenting men and elves. All right. So he manufactured the orcs. He's later on going to manufacture the dragon when he really kicks his R&D department into gear. He manufactures the Balrogs. The orcs and demons, the demons of the Balrogs, that's, that's, that's who they are, right? He uses the word, just as he uses the word gods when he's talking about the Valar, he uses the word demons when he's talking about the Balrogs, right? Um, uh, so he, he made them, right? He made the Balrogs, he made the orcs. Um, they are not like 
spirits they are not Maiar who came over and came to his side very few came to his side few of the divine race went with him not none but few and the Balrogs you may remember are not few a thousand Balrogs marched with him against Fionnway, right? We, we, we got, isn't that the battle where we got the thousand Balrogs? Am I remembering correctly there? Um, there's lots of Balrogs, right? Balrogs over the place. You know, the, 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 the place is lousy with Balrogs. They're not nearly as rare as they're going to become later on down the road. He's going to change his, and that's going to happen, of course, when he decides that the Balrogs are going to be Maiar, right? That they're going to be other Ainur, other lesser uh, spirits who come in uh, with, uh, with, with Melkor. Um, and yes, in the fall of Gondolin Marie, we see the same thing. Um, so, uh, so, but, but again, yeah, Sauron, exactly, Arthur. Sauron is one of those few, right? So there are a few of divine race that went with him. We're opening the door for Sauron there, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sauron was one of them and maybe there are others. Um, but, um, uh, but not the Balrogs. The Balrogs are the demons that he made along with, uh, the orcs. So that's kind of interesting. Okay, all right. So again, this is where we are. But again, notice what this again. Think not not just noticing, um, you know, out of out of academic interest, these changes or, or developments. But what does that show us? What kind of story are we in? How does this contextualize the other stories? It helps us to see this place is Morgoth for us, right? He is not, in fact, like the general of the opposing forces. Um, he's the solitary tyrant, right? Who takes creatures as slaves and he manufactures his servants um, from a de- you know, in a similar way, but for a very different motivation than uh, Aule manufactured his own people. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's, and this is, this is who he is in a sort of a vision of what he wants to turn the world into. Right. Um, so, uh, okay. All right. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, more. How about the uh, children of the Valar and their physical forms and their weddings and all that kind of thing? What do we do with this? Now, the Ainur that came into the world took shape and form, such even as have the children of Iluvatar who were born of the world. But their shape and form is greater and more lovely, and it comes of the knowledge and desire of the substance of the world, rather than that, rather than that of... That sub that I think I think is a typo. Rather than of that substance itself, I think, and it cannot always be perceived, though they be present. And some of them, therefore, took form and temper as of female, and some as of male. Okay, so let's try to let's try to unpack this. So they take on form, right? Um, but no, okay. So their form doesn't come from the substance of the world. They don't take stuff. They don't take you know, dirt and air and, and you know, they don't take earth and make it into a form and then dwell inside that form. That's not how they do, right? What they do is they take a form that comes of the knowledge and desire of the substance of the world. That's what the Valar are made of, right? Okay, knowledge, the knowledge and desire of the substance of the world. That's what they're made of. Okay, um... And it's not when they can't, they can, they sometimes aren't visible. They don't always have to be visible. Um, They cannot always be perceived. We see that though they be present. But notice it doesn't say anything about changing forms or like leaving that form. So again, it's not like I have a fleshly body that I made myself. But sometimes I leave my fleshly body, you know, behind, and it droops there like Pinocchio. And I go off and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, go 
talk to or go listen in or go flit around Middle Earth in my spirit, my pure spirit form, and then maybe come back. It's not like that, right? They have their form, um, but their form is not a physical form. Um, they're not born of the world, nor is their form made of the substance of the world. Um, rather, it is greater and more lovely. And it comes from the knowledge and desire of the substance of the world. Um, I don't even really know what that means. That is like, that doesn't help me to do like, this doesn't bring me any closer to like a chemical analysis of like the bodies of the Valar, right? I don't get it. Um, but I, um, but I think it's cool conceptually, right? Um, they are modeling themselves, their appearances, their forms after the substances of the world because of their love and admiration of the substance of the world and their knowledge of it, right? So they don't use it with actual... They don't... Um, um, they don't... Uh, uh, they don't... like Again, they don't take substance from the world uh, and live it. They're, they're, they've made their own thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that's interesting. So how does this help us with their children then, right? They do have children. Um, they still have children. We've not stopped the Valar having children yet. Someday we're gonna... Tolkien's not gonna do that anymore, but it's still happening now, right? So in what sense then can we understand that? Well, they don't procreate in the normal way, right? They're they're not made out of the substance of the world. They're not born of the world, right? Um, and their children aren't going to be born of the world either. Fionnwe isn't born of the world. You know, he's not like the cousin of the elves or something. He's different. Um, but just as, in as much as their substance is made of their knowledge and desire of the substance of the world, they can, like, pass that down. I find the idea of the children of the Valar kind of appealing. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if this is just me. Because what I find appealing about it is how it works allegorically. There is, for me, an inescapable allegorical element in the gods and the children of the gods. Um, Orome as son of Yavanna works. I love it. Uh, conceptually, it really helps me to understand Orome. But when I think about it, I'm thinking about those two characters, Yavanna and Orome, as allegorical abstractions, right? Um, Orome is like one sort of manifestation or like it is it is sort of a state of mind and of being which emerges from you know the one who makes the plants and the animals right um and there's a harmony there there's a kinship there um but not an identity and that is beautifully expressed through the allegory of parentage Parentage is a very popular allegorical mode. If you read allegory, like real old-fashioned allegory, um, you find uh, 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 
people you find this uh, this kind of thing all the time if you really want to if you really want to uh, you know one person who's really good at this is John Bunyan John Bunyan though he's not old school um, in this well okay I mean John Bunyan is pretty old school but um, you know he's not a medieval allegorist he's a sort of a a strange throwback in the 17th century and yet um, the kind of allegory he wrote was very similar to the kind of allegory that they wrote in the Middle Ages, you know, in sort of the, the, the noontide of allegory. Um, and he's great at this. Um, his, like, especially if you read his allegory, The Holy War, he's always having like these virtues who are, who are like the children of other virtues. Um, and, and he uses that and he'll do like the whole family tree of these allegorical figures. And it's, it's a really fun part of the allegory because it sort of, it suggests uh, the different interconnections between these different sort of um, vices or virtues or states of mind. Um, so that's always been that whole parentage thing, um, has always been a really, uh, um, uh, a really, a really interesting, a really fascinating element of allegorical stuff. I love allegory, big fan of allegory. Tolkien may cordially dislike it. I don't, I don't cordially dislike it. I, uh, I enthusiastically love it. Um, but this is what's interesting to me is that I, I cannot under, I don't know how maybe Tolkien knows a way that I don't know. I don't know how to understand the, the fa- familial relationships among the Valar in a totally non-allegorical way. Um, that seems to me to be an open invitation to read them allegorically. And frankly, that seems to fit perfectly well in the world of the book of lost tales, especially the further back you go, the more allegorical um, in this way was Tolkien's thought. He did that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, I find this, and, so, and th- that, that this, this description seems to me to be, uh, um, to be kind of confirming that in a sense, if you see what I mean. Um, that is to say, they don't, they don't just like, become children of the world, right? They don't just incarnate themselves in regular earthly bodies, which then, you know, leads them to have, like, fleshly desires and to get married and, you know, have children in the course of nature. And that that's not the story. It's not how the Valar operate, because their bodies aren't at all like that. Um, their bodies are the offspring of their own thought, which means their children are like the the offspring of the combined thought of two of the Valar, right? When their thought comes together and merges, the result is this child, right? I don't know how to understand that in totally non-allegorical way. Um, it just, it just, it is. If you're not comfortable with allegory, say metaphorical, but uh, to me, again, that's that's just the only way I can make sense of reading it. Um, and that's still, that, and that seems to me to fit really well. Um, Tolkien still seems to be kind of open to that here. Um, he's going to close up to that uh, later on. Um, and I, I'm not 100% sure why. We'll sort of track that as we go. But, um, but, but anyway, uh, th- to me, that was one of the things that I was kind of thinking about when I was thinking about the form of the valor. And we see this introduction of the gender thing. Some took the form, uh, took form and temper as of female and some as of male. Um, he does not say here, as he does, in the, as is said in the published Silmarillion, that this is merely an expression of the being, that that difference of temper they had in the beginning and is merely bodied forth in their choice. He doesn't specify that yet, right? Um, uh, it seems to be just sort of the choice that they made uh, originally. Okay. 
This is my hopelessness of getting to the Flomas. Okay, this next one we're going to pass over super quickly. Shouldn't need more than 10 or 15 seconds to cover this puppy. The free will of men. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to fashion their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation everything should be, in shape and deed, completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. Lo, even we, elves, have found to our sorrow that men have a strange power for good or ill, and for turning things aside from the purpose of the Valar or of elves, so that it is said among us that fate is not master of the children of men, yet are they blind, and their joy is small, which should be great. Okay. Um, As I say, this is real simple and straightforward. Okay. I actually don't have all that much that I want to say about this. Um, The passage, the parallel passage, the revised version of this that survives in the published Silmarillion is a sticking point for a lot of people. And it has precipitated a whole lot of debate. Um, One question, for instance, that is very commonly asked as a consequence of this... um, um, as a consequence of this uh, this passage, is do elves have free will? In what sense are the wills of humans more free than of elves? Does this mean that elves don't have free will and that everything they do is fated and predestined? Um, right. <laughs> Jordan Jordan says, we humans have free will to move on to the next slide. Yeah, I may exert that will at some point soon. Um, Yes. Okay. Um, Here's, to me, this is... Still thinking about the Silmarillion passage again, which leads to the... the, I mean, if you read it literally, I mean, if you read it just simply, what it does seem to suggest... Elves ha- don't have free will, and humans do. Or in some sense, humans wills, humans, the human will is freer than elvish will is. What the heck does that mean, exactly? Um, I don't know. I think if you try to make a thoroughgoing argument about, on that subject, right? if you really try to argue out thoroughly, elves don't have free will. Everything they do is predestined. They don't really make choices. And you can say that all you like, but you can't read the Silmarillion stories and really believe that. That is, I mean, it's it's the whole Silmarillion story from one end to the next, at least the elf portions of it, are all about the choices that the elves make and how, like, oh, Fanor shouldn't have done this, but he did, and oh, dear. Like, I mean, you can wave your hands and be like, well, but, you know, Fanor was destined to do that, so whatever. Like, you can say that, but you're no no longer talking about the story that Tolkien wrote when he wrote the story of Fanor. So, uh, to me, that's not at all a fruitful direction to take this. The thing that really struck me when I read this version of it is that it seems to me that the emphasis is entirely otherwise than that. Um, that does not seem to me the take-home... The take-home message here does not seem to me, elves don't have free will. Rather, I, my what I would argue is that we should focus on where this passage starts. What exactly is the gift that he's giving to men? Freedom, yes, but again, that's not where it starts. 
He willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and find no rest therein. So remember, the music of the Ainur is bodied forth in the world, right? Uh, it's, you know, it, it, he takes them and he says, look, here's the world that you made, right? It's history is starting and they're like, ooh, can we enter in? And he's like, yeah, right? That world is the music of the Ainur. So men should seek beyond the world, which means, by definition, beyond the music of the Ainur, to something which is outside the scope of the knowledge and understanding of the Ainur and of the music that they made and which they have bound themselves to and entered into. Okay, so that that's now they now live. They 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 made the framework or they contributed anyway to the framework, which was the music. And they now have chosen to enter into that framework and live within that frame. It's like they painted a picture or they, you know, it's a group project to paint a picture which had a particular frame. Right. And they've decided they've asked if they could go into that picture. But that means they have to live inside the frame that they made. Right. Men seek outside the frame. And they will not find rest inside that frame. Unlike the Valar, unlike elves, right? Um, that's the context for this virtue to fashion their life. And by the way, virtue doesn't mean as opposed to vice. Um, I, it seems to me pretty clear that in that sentence, Tolkien is using the word virtue in the old sense, the antique sense of that word, which just means power. Um, again, it's like, I think I've talked about this before, it's like the way the word virtue is used in the King James translation of the New Testament. When um, the the woman with the issue of blood touches the, 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 the hem of Jesus' garment um, and her flow of blood is staunched, and Jesus in the King James stops and says, who touched me? And the, 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 the apostles are like, what are you talking about? And, and he says, I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. Right? Power. It means power. Right, So they have the power to fashion their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. It contains everything. The entire world, desire, scope, power, life of the elves and Valar is contained within the world. The humans are not. Right, That seems to me the heart of this whole passage. The substance of the gift that is given. So it's not a question of like, who has more freedom to choose what they do or not do not do during their lives? It's not about that. It's about where are you headed? It's about what they, 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 in a sense, they live in a different world. They, they have, they seek beyond the world. They don't just seek for the West, right? Um, when the elves find, when they get to the West, when they get to Valinor, and they are living in communion with the Valar, they have achieved like the height of what the of what you know Arda has to offer them, right? Um, that not so with men, right? For men, the westward migration, right? The desire for the light in the West is itself only a metaphor, only a glimpse of that. <clears throat> thing that they really desire, which is outside the world, you know, which is like, because this is we, even we elves, right? Therefore, this thing that they desire and where they go, this is like, sir, not appearing in this film, right? We don't know. We elves don't know um, uh, what this thing is. And so they, they operate differently, man. Their lives work differently. Their choices are made differently. And we elves don't get it. Okay. Um, and it's uh, uh, it's that the this the the music is not as fate 
to them. They're not, their lives are not contained. Their story is not contained within the music because the music doesn't tell their whole story. Um, in fact, the whole like conclusion, the whole point of their story um, is as, I mean, it, there's a sense in which the music is only the overture of the story of men. That's the gift that they're given. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, um, I was really interested in this passage primarily because I think it casts a different light on this question. And to me, the emphasis is much stronger on that front end, um, which is, yeah, Nancy, I kind of agree with you. I like this explanation better too. I'm not, uh, I, I am, I like this much better than I like the final version in the published Silmarillion. Um, this just makes more sense to me. I, the other, I mean, I've had so many conversations with people who are just going, huh? When reading that passion passage in the published Silmarillion, I think this, um, this is really much more powerful. Okay. One last point. Did you get Christopher Tolkien's confession? He almost never talks like this. This was a rare moment for Christopher Tolkien. This is a true confessional. Do you notice this? Um, uh, the A text of the Anuindale has a Middle Earth um, uh, that is uh, um, they, 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 uh, the, that they look down upon the, the, the Middle Earth, uh, their desire for the Middle Earth. Um, which probably first appears in AV1. Uh, so the use, his use of the word Middle-earth is curious, and I cannot account for it. There seems no reason to specify the Middle Lands. That's what Middle-earth meant. That's why it's called Middle-earth, because you've got the east, the lands in the, in, the, in, the, in the east, and you've got the lands in the west, which is Valinor, and you've got Middle-earth in the middle, right? Um, uh, they were called the Great Lands. They have come to be called Middle-earth, right? As he points out, AV1, the, annals of Val- the first Annals of Valinor, um, is the first time that the Great Lands are called Middle-earth. So why is it that the Valar are looking at Middle-earth in particular in the Ainulindale, right? That doesn't make any sense, says Christopher. Um, why should they specify just that continent, uh, right, as like the, 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 the sort of the heart of their desire? Um, specify the Middle Lands between the seas to the exclusion of the lands of East and West. But the reading survived through the post-Lord of the Rings versions of the Ainulindale. The change in the Silmarillion, that is the change in the published Silmarillion to the matters of which Arda was made, was editorial. Did you catch the confession? Christopher Tolkien's like, yeah, I changed that, and I had no justification for changing it, right? My dad wrote Middle-earth, and he kept writing it. He didn't change it. He revised this puppy several times, and every time he revised it, he kept in Middle-earth. But I don't think... I don't think... That makes any sense. And he couldn't really have meant that. So I, Christopher Tolkien, struck that out on, on, off my own bat, struck that out and changed it to the matters of which Arda was made. Ah, uh, now look, I'm trying to get on Christopher Tolkien about this, right? I mean, goodness knows the, uh, the, the, um, you know, obviously, you know, the editorial work that he's done here is, it is, is amazing. I'm not trying to give him a hard time, but that's really interesting, right? Um, and even the fact, of course, you know, and, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to rag on him. I, 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 I'm giving him nothing but credit for admitting this, right? And for putting that out there. It's really good that he did, um, because I would have been continuing to wonder, where did that, uh, where did that matters of which Arda was made come from? 
right? Um, and um, this isn't the first time that Christopher Tolkien has kind of drawn back the curtain a little bit and revealed, like, see, here's here's stuff that. Remember, we 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 talked about this some. Um, Way back, I think it was in the in the in the Lays of Beleriand and in uh, in uh, the Book of Lost Tales classes, when looking at like the what a mess the Thingol story is, you know the whole Doriath story, and he him talking about the choices that he had to make to make. We talked about this when we were looking at the fall of Gondolin, and uh, you know thinking of the Quenta. Uh, we were looking at the fall of Gondolin and the Quenta, and how it was that Christopher came to kind of piece stuff together and his his admission of things that he put into the Fall of Gondolin story in the published Silmarillion, not because Tolkien ever wrote, because there were sentences that Tolkien himself never never wrote, but because, like, this idea had changed, but he hadn't revised this text after he'd changed his mind about it, but he had totally changed his mind, and had he done the revision of that passage, he totally would have changed it to this, so I had to decide, do I keep what he actually wrote, or do I change it to what I really know he meant to change it? You know, so he's already talked about that. Um, but this is different. Um, this is really... This is really interesting because this is simply him saying, I'm going to go with the fact that this was a mistake, that he didn't really mean Middle-earth, even though he kind of seemed to have meant it, that he kind of kept it and didn't change it again and again and again. Um, And yeah, I'm not sure I agree with him here. I'm not sure that we can't make sense of it. I think that uh, Yana, just as you suggest, maybe the Valar knew that Middle-earth would be the center stage in this history. Maybe it is, in fact, the story of Middle-earth that they're thinking of um, when they do this, that there's, there's, there's a reason he's drawing our attention to Middle-earth here. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. I mean, Christopher might be right. Might be a mistake. It might be not what he intended. Um, the use of Middle-earth was still relatively new, right? So, you know, it's possible that he's... Um, you know, it's possible that he's... Um, you know, headed off in a, headed off in a, a sort of different direction with it. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to make, make, I just wanted to make sure you didn't miss this scandalous passage, uh, so that, uh, you could, uh, you could think about it. Okay. Um, there's really no point in starting with llamas. There just isn't. Um, it's okay. Next time, I'm going to be super efficient, like massively, unbelievably efficient, and uh, we will uh, we'll do it. We'll do it then. Karita says, speaking of confession, how many slides are left? Nine, actually. Nine slides we haven't gotten to today, including the entire Hamas, which I was really hoping to get to. Um, that's all right. We'll do it next time. We'll do it next time. We'll sa- save the Hlamas. Re- by, by all means, enjoy the Hlamas a second time. Go back and reread the Hlamas for next week. I know you're, you're probably were going to do that anyway. Um, but um, uh, yeah, Tom Hillman says, always bet the under. I don't know. I've been better lately. Uh, but I'm actually not doing so well in this class so far. Oh, well. Anyway, that's okay. It's been fun. Um, let's... Um, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll 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 come back to the Hamas next time, and of course next time we start the Quenta Silmarillion. Uh, so we're going to go back and revisit the longer version, longer than the Annals anyway, version of the story. This is clearly right, the just from its length, the sort of crowning centerpiece of the Silmarillion, that thing that Tolkien is trying to get published here. So we'll uh, 
we'll look at that, uh, at least the first bits of that next time. Look forward to the discoveries we'll make next week. Look forward to finally getting to the Hlamas. Sorry about that. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, thanks, everybody. See you guys next week. I am traveling next week, so I'll be away from my customary backdrop. I hope my internet will be okay, so there's a non-zero chance that I might have to have to jigger with the times next week. I might have to I might have to put things off. I'll be home on Sunday. That'll be my backup time. So if we can't do next Wednesday, we'll do next Sunday, like 10 days from now. Um, I hope we won't come to that, but um, just brace yourself in case that happens. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>